When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following is a presentation of the Belly Up Sports Media Network. Thank you for listening to this Belly Up Sports Podcast Network product. Some said we'd go belly up, so we made it our name, and we're still here. Coming up on the Behind the Mic Podcast, one minute you're sharing a stadium with major and minor league baseball dressing in a high school locker room. The next, you finally get a home of your own. This is part two of our discussion of historic stadiums of the NFL. You're behind the mic with Michael Neal Jr. All right, late drop. I have a lot of papers, so it don't sound, it's, it's really thick. NFL historians and lovers of sports history, welcome in. The show is for you guys and gals. It's cool. If you already know this stuff, congratulations to you. But there's always someone else who does not. This show is for those who don't know as much about NFL history. My job is to enlighten, teach, and learn. It is the Behind the Mic podcast. I am your your mic. I am your host, Michael Neal Jr. Uh, This show is presented by Belly Up Sports, Belly Up Media, Belly Up Sports Podcast Network. Go to our website, bellyupsports.com, and you can catch us on our home base of Megaphone. And the favorites like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and YouTube. So, we're getting right to it. It's Wednesday night. I'm late. It's supposed to be posted at 6 this morning. That's okay. Look, my daughter comes first. All right? <laughs> I got had to take care of family things first. And uh, we'll get right to it. Storylines of Week 13. Bad weather. More injuries. And any time a quarterback is signed off the street toward the practice squad, He'll eventually be playing or even starting. Kick the music. Week 13, the rundown. Thursday night football, Seahawks, Cowboys. One of the best Thursday night football games was marred by penalties. At one point, I was ready to turn the game off. I really was. Um, it was the Cleet ba- uh, Blakeman show. Cleet Blakeman, if you don't know, he's the head referee uh, that was forced to call a penalty seemingly every two to three plays and it figures both dallas and seattle the most penalized teams in the league at this point 19 penalties somebody else had 17 on sunday but we'll get to them later but look my god but i was actually surprised that seattle scored back yes i always say the other team gets paid too but i just was i mean i i i I was very surprised dk metcalf had a big game scored three times geno smith 330 yards through the air but Dallas's offense, they just outscored, just simply put. Dak Prescott, a yard short of 300. He had three touchdowns, zero turnovers. That's key. CD Lamb, 12 catches. And Michael Parsons, Micah Parsons, he only had two tackles all night. But he got the key pressure on Geno Smith on fourth down where Seattle was threatening to retake the lead. Dallas wins a shootout, 
and their 14th straight home game. Dallas and the Cowboys, 41. Seahawks, 35. Sunday noon, Chargers, Patriots. Now, this was the day that it was just raining and ugly everywhere, seemingly, at least on the East Coast and up north. Well, one of my many games rained sideways, and it equaled not much offense for a lot of uh, anybody on Sunday. A few teams did break through, but the Chargers, Patriots did not. Uh, Cameron Dicker, the kicker for uh, Cameron Dicker, the kicker. Yeah. Two 38-yard field goals for the Chargers in the second quarter, and that was it. Chargers defense, they did their job, gave up zero points, but the offense, you are so much better than two field goals. It just are. Rain or shine. The Patriots became the first team since the 1938 Chicago Cardinals to give up less than 10 points and still lose. And I guess Belichick benching Mac Jones for Bailey Zappi didn't really matter. Now the Patriots are 2-10, the worst in the AFC. Chargers 6, Patriots Zippo. Lions, Saints. One of my favorite comedians all time is Sinbad. Sinbad, uh, on one of his shows, talked about old underwear for men. Old draws, fruit of the looms. And he talked about the crotches all out and that last piece of fruit is hanging on the back of them and you're just holding on for dear life. The joint played like an old pair of draws. They hung in there like that last piece of fruit on a pair of fruit and looms. They did. They raced out to a 21-0 lead. Then they couldn't score. Love Sam LaPorta. Got him on my fantasy team. Uh, the rookie tight end from out of Iowa. Put on the show. Nine catches, a buck 40, and a first quarter touchdown. I felt bad, though, for Derek Carr for the Saints. He didn't play bad on purpose, but at one point he was booed when he was trotting back onto the field uh, to sub in, uh, back in for Taysom Hill. Why? Because Hill's running was more effective than Carr's passing, and the fans did not like him coming back out there. But you know, if you missed the game, Carr got knocked out of the game once again, third time this season. And then the report, shoulder, back, concussion, outs. Get well, please. The Saints pulled within as many as three points. I think it was 24 to 21 at one point. Couldn't get past and over the hump. Two Riley Patterson field goals for Detroit. Uh, and then that fancy pants trick play that ended with Jameson Williams with the touchdown run. Put a ball on the Saints in the Superdome. Lions 33, Saints 28. Falcons, Jets, ugly. Just, just ugly game. Ugly rain to be there and to watch it. It made my eyes bleed. I can't unwatch that. But the Jets, they hit two free throws and a safety. They tackled B. John Robinson in the end zone. And then other than that, the offense yet again could only kick field goals instead of scoring touchdowns. Tim Boyle, ineffective in place of Zach Wilson. Trevor Lawrence signed off the, pra uh, off the street, elevated from the practice squad. He came in in the fourth quarter. Let the Jets turn the football over three times. The Falcons. They played paycheck to paycheck, just enough to get by. And a lot like the Cowboys Seahawks, this was the game. 17 penalties between these two teams. And then there was the ugly final score. Falcons 13, Jets 8. Cardinals, Steelers, long day in Pittsburgh. Storm so bad, there were two weather delays. And as a Steelers fan, it hurt me the most. Uh, the game was tied at three. Fourth and goal on the one-yard line, and they can't get it in. Cardinals turn around, march 99 yards, and then they score. And then to make matters worse, the injuries. I mean, T.J. Watt went down. That scared the life out of me. And then Kenny Pickett, he leaves with an ankle injury. Well, James Conner, on the other hand, who, like Pickett, was a star at the University of Pitt, was the last good back outside of Le'Veon Bell for the Steelers. He returned 
and ran for a buck o two, and he scored twice for the Cardinals. Pittsburgh could not reach the end zone until the game was out of reach. And I guess Deontay Johnson was happy with that since he scored. Cardinals 24, Steelers 10. No shade. Well, maybe a little. Colts-Titans. Divisional games are always tough, and there was the back-and-forth game here in Nashville. And at one point, the Titans led 17-7, which we all know don't last that long because the other team does get paid to. Regulation ended tied at 25, and Tennessee possibly could have took a one-point lead. They actually missed an extra point, Nick Folk, and that's because their regular holder, the punter, Ryan Stonehouse, knocked out of the game with a leg injury. The punt was blocked for the second time in a row, which did result in 10 Colts points. Ryan Tannehill was taking his place. The hole was good, but Folk simply missed the extra point. Not to mention, after going over the century mark, 102 yards, Derrick Henry knocked out of the game with a concussion. Woo-wee, a lot of injuries already. The Titans also lost all-pro defensive lineman Jeffrey Simmons to a knee injury. Yikes. And then Folk and Tannehill, they teamed up for a field goal in overtime. But the Titans defense, they give up in overtime that 55-yard pass play from Gardner Minshew to Alec Pierce. Two plays later, Minshew to Michael Pittman, walk-off TD. Indy sweeps Tennessee, winning their fourth in a row. Wow. The Titans lose their first home game of the season. The end, Colts 31, Titans 28. Dolphins commanders, well, weather wasn't great. <laughs> it wasn't in, uh, in D.C., but the Dolphins can swim. It was 31-7 to at halftime, 38-7 to uh, in the third, and there was time to empty the bench. During, uh, I should have started Devon A. Chan, but who knew he was going to run for over 70 yards and two touchdowns? I had all those points sitting on the bench. Anyway, um, I guess if the commanders don't know by now, Tariq Hill is fast, really fast. Do not single cover the guy. And I can still smell the commander's secondary. Hill at one point had more yards, I believe, than the Washington offense. But caught five, but buck 57 and two touchdowns. And I love the roller coaster celebration. That was great. The Washington defense was bad on Sunday. Jack Del Rio was fired, right? Now head coach Ron Rivera, he's calling the defensive plays. And it also was bad with Sam Howell. And he is the most sacked quarterback in the league with the most interceptions. Dolphins 45, Commanders 15. Broncos, Texans, the Broncos have won, had, remember, past tense, had won five straight games. Russell Wilson, he had thrown eight touchdowns and no interceptions in that stretch. Sunday, Wilson had one touchdown, three picks. Yeah. And all credit goes to that D'Amico Ryan's Texans defense and then Houston's back-to-back -back third overall picks, Derek Stingley Jr., Stingley Jr. Uh, he picked Wilson off twice, and then Will Anderson Jr. <laughs> had two sacks and eight quarterback pressures. Now, on the offensive side, C.J. Stroud and the Texans, they lost Tank Dell, broken leg. He's done for the season. But <laughs> the Buckeye Stroud had to rely on a Wolverine, Nico Collins. He steps in, caught nine for 191 yards, and he scored a touchdown. And with all of that, Denver was only down 22 to 17 with 20 seconds left to go on the clock. Russell Wilson, he's running out of a sack, and then he tries to force a pass in the end zone to his uh, his tight end, Lucas Kroll. Picked off, ball game, Texas 22, Broncos 17. Afternoon slate, Panthers. You go to visit the Buccaneers in the rain. 
New England to Florida, the rain poured in pretty heavy. Don't notice, all right? It was no different down there in Tampa. At least there were some points that were scored. And the story of this game, um, we're not necessarily the struggling now 1-11 Carolina Panthers and Bryce Young's team, nor the fact that the Buccaneers won the football game. But for me, the story of the game was Mike Evans. For the 10th year in a row, he's gone over 1,000 yards. He and only world, Jerry Rice, if you don't know, have ever done that. Hall of Fame company. No matter who is playing quarterback, Jameis Winston, Tom Brady, <laughs> uh, Baker Mayfield, and go back before Jameis Winston, all those guys, 1,000 yards every year, 10 years in a row. That's phenomenal. And speaking of quarterbacks, Baker Mayfield, he completed 14 passes on Sunday for 202 yards. Half of those completions went to Evans for 162 of those yards. So the Panthers could not stop it. Young and the Panthers, though, they were still close to getting a W. Got some help. Young did from Chuba Hubbard. He ran for 100 yards and scored twice. That's good. But their last drive ended after only four plays when Young was picked off by Antoine Winfield Jr. on a fourth and one play. A lot of juniors. <laughs> Buccaneers 21, Panthers 18. Browns, Rams, two Super Bowl winning quarterbacks, Matt Stafford and 38-year-old Joe Flacco, who was signed off the street as well, knew he was going to end up starting, especially after uh, Darrell uh, Thompson Robinson's concussion mouth bleeding last week. But Flacco, he was looking good until, what, a little under six minutes left to go in the fourth quarter? He throws a bomb to Elijah Moore, which was more like a punt, and it came up way short and got picked off. It was 20 to 19 Rams at that point. And then the Rams proceeded to score 16 points, two touchdowns and a safety on Flacco. Stafford, he tossed three touchdowns. Kyron Williams ran for 88 on the ground in the score. Puka Nakua went for over 100 and a 70 yard score. Cooper Cup scores for the first time since what, October? And all of that helps on top of the fact that Cleveland's defense had zero sacks and only touched Stafford twice all day. Rams 36, Browns 19. 49ers, Eagles. NFC Championship game back in January. Brock Purdy gets hurt, torn ligament in his elbow. He can't throw. His backup gets hurt, and they're literally down to Christian McCaffrey playing quarterback. Hmm. Of course the Eagles won. 49ers offense this past Sunday stagnant in the first quarter, and then the alarm went off in the second. Philly's defense whom had plenty of, he's got plenty of Georgia players on it, right? Just like the Bulldogs that lost the ACC championship game, they're not the same defense, neither is Phillies. Good, but not great. Maybe Shaquille Leonard will help, but Philadelphia's offense had plenty of games this year where they start off slow and eventually woke up in the second half. Troy Eggman, I believe, made that point, but it didn't happen this week. Nick Sirianni, security guy, gets tossed out along with Drake Greenlaw because of the finger point thing, and. After all of that stuff, San Francisco, they still blew out both Dallas at the end of the day. They blew out both Dallas and Philadelphia. And, yeah, that game's a lot different when an actual quarterback is in there. 49ers 42, Eagles 19. Sunday night football, Chiefs Packers. Green Bay just looks different now. They do. All year long, I've talked about how bad Jordan Love has looked. And this he looks like he's turning the corner. Slowly but surely, the Chiefs defense. Love was eating their lunch, and so were the Packers receivers. Love on the day, on the night rather, he was 25 of 36, 267 yards. He threw two touch, uh, three touchdowns, didn't have any turnovers. Isaiah Pachinko for the offense of the Chiefs, he ran again like he stole something or like his life depends on it. 
and uh, he had over 100 yards, but as far as the passing game goes, Mahomes struggled a little bit, and that offense just could not get it going. And it's still the same. They haven't changed yet. I think it's going to carry over into the playoffs. Mark my words. Three possessions in the fourth quarter by Kansas City went just like this for the Chiefs. Punt, interception, desperation, Hail Mary, end of the game. Yes, the referees, they missed some pass interference calls on their drive. It wasn't all. They missed some, you know, in favor of the Packers as well. But, you know, oh well. Game's over now. Packers 27, Chiefs 19, Monday Night Football, Bengals, Jaguars. Did not see that one coming. Jake Browning looked like he was playing back at UW again for the Huskies. The game just, you know, started off like dink and dunk, but then Zach Taylor and Browning, they actually turned it up a notch, and Browning actually looked kind of like a pro bowler. He finished the game 34 of 37, threw for 354 yards in the one touchdown. Uh, he had plenty of help. Joe Mixon rushed for two touchdowns. Jamar Chase caught 11 for a buck 79 and scored that one touchdown, and it was a back-and-forth game, but Trevor Lawrence did it all with his arm and his legs, but it was unfortunate. He got stepped on by his own lineman, suffered a severe high ankle sprain. And then, of course, C.J. Beathard comes in off the bench colder than you can be, right? And the game goes into overtime, even after Beathard comes in driving them to a game-time field goal uh, by Brandon McManus. But better, you know, Beathard in that offense, they only lasted a couple of plays, punted away to the Bengals. And their only possession in overtime, Browning didn't waste any time. They went down. Ever McPherson kicks a game-winning field goal. Bengals 34, Jaguars 31. Bing, bang, pow. That's it. <laughs> Coming up next, from local parks and baseball fields to retractable roofs. Part two of our continued discussion on the NFL's historic stadiums. Because last week, so, you know, in diving into it, I really don't feel like I did it justice um, in talking about our first part. But one thing just seems to be clear, you know, when you have the fact that pro football was way down here and Major League Baseball and, of course, college football was way up here. Uh, when they came in, it was almost like I want to say that football, pro football was at their mercy. But you got to start somewhere. Um, one thing you got to remember uh, with all these stadiums that teams played in in the early years, they're all rooted in baseball. Okay. That's what they were built for, the, at least the major ones, the better ones, other than them playing in a park, right? Uh, they were built for and they was made room for football. The trend is this that I'm finding out even after going through these first two parts. Because you're going from the 19, when football started in 1920, right? Going from around 1919, and then we're going up to what? The 1970s now. Um, and where they started as well as where they finished. And we're going in kind of the order of the NFL throwback series that I watched on YouTube. Great NFL uh, stadium video. It, it, was, it was very descriptive. Of course, I delve a little deeper. Um, I don't spend too long on each one, but I dive in a little bit deeper on some of the details right, that were left out. But in, in effect, the trend is this. The NFL and pro football begins. They play in baseball stadiums and parks and then eventually move out of these older stadiums into new football only playing fields. You know, most of the old ones have been demolished 
and some still exist and they are now they are historical landmarks i mean that's great you know look at the review from last week kick a little bit of the light music for me please Triangle Park, you know, they had the Dayton Triangles, and we talked about the Chicago Bears starting off at Staley Field, which was a recreational stadium on a company property, right? Um, the Wrigley Field and the Soldier Field, it, there was baseball, and then there was the multi-purpose. Um, it, normal Park, this is between the Chicago Bears and, of course, the Chicago Cardinals before the Cardinals started moving all over the country, you know, between St. Louis and in Arizona, you know, so... And not to mention all the other places that they played. The New York Giants played a majority of their uh, first part of their history at the Polo Grounds, at least until 1964 when the Polo Grounds, which started off the first four, let's just say the first four incarnations. The first one was built what way back in 1876. And the Polo Grounds was for polo matches, right? Um, Wrigley Field, going back to Wrigley Field, it was the, the site of the first NFL championship game. You have all of those different special moments that they held. The Chicago Bears defeated the New York Giants 23-21 to in 1933 because before that they weren't doing uh, your divisions and things like that. You had the best team that finished at the end of the year. They were the champs. And then <laughs> George Preston Marshall, hey, I got an idea. How about we split into divisions and the two best teams play at the end of the year? All right, cool. Let's do it. Uh, the Polo Grounds, going back to them, they, they had three three real incarnations. The first one, like I said, started off uh, around um, uh, Central Park, and then you go up to Upper Manhattan, and then around, what, the Harlem River? You had fire that destroyed it, and then they redid this, and they went from wood to steel and concrete, or, or well, steel and stuff like that. And then, you know, that was like the site of the famous sneakers game, the 1934 NFL Championship game. So you have Normal Park uh, where the Cardinals were playing. So that's just a couple of the ones that we did on last week. Well, this week, you know, we get a little bit further with some of the other teams that came in between the 1920s and the 1930s. And we will start with the Green Bay Packers, who are actually established back in 1919. Some of those teams that came into the NFL in the early years, they were already playing some football. They weren't just brand new right off the street. But the Packers joined the NFL in 1921. And they started playing at Hagermeister Park, which was owned by the brewery by the same name, Hagermeister Brewery. I don't know how good that beer was. I don't like beer. Uh, you know, please don't quote, don't, don't, don't at me. Um, from 1921 and 1922, th those are the two years they played there. There was no fencing there, and they didn't really care who was showing up to the games. I, you know, just, just walk up and hey, there's a game going on. Just like you would be at at a, a park and it's like a rec league playing flag football or something, but it was professional football. But historians say that a hat was passed around to pay the players. You know, so that's how they did that. In 1922, Hagermeister Park was torn down after the season to build a new high school, which turned out to be Green Bay East High School, all right? Which was a high school that was also, uh, it was actually well-established going back into the 1800s, but they built a new building there. And the Packers would move to Bellevue Park, which was a minor league baseball park. And they played there in 1923 and 1924. And it was actually built with the same lumber from the Hagermeister Park location. And they did it, what, in less than three weeks. 
and uh, they had a capacity of only 3,300, but you know, it was one of those things that turned out to be very, very well short-lived because they ended up moving into a real stadium, City Stadium to be exact. And they played there from 1925 to 1956. Now here's, this is something that I did not know, okay? I had no idea because I never dove into this. I thought that, well, let me stop right there. So. The first stadium that was built strictly for football was City Stadium. And specifically for the Green Bay Packers, who actually dressed at the what they call the quote nearby high school. And that nearby high school was Green Bay East. Right? Green Bay East High School was was their home field as well. And guess what? The owner slash coach, Curly Lambeau, that was where he went to high school. He wasn't the only one. I think there were about four or five other Packers, but he's the most notable Packer that actually went to that high school. Well, 1956 was their last year playing there because they built New City Stadium in 1957 where the Packers played to this day. Yes, it was renamed Lambeau Field. I thought the Packers had always played in Lambeau Field. I honestly did. I thought it was always Lambeau Field. I didn't think that it was Hagermeister Park and Bellevue Park. I didn't know. And even if you say the, the first city stadium, I'm thinking, okay, well, that's how old it's supposed to be, right? Well, not quite. And they didn't rename it Lambeau Field until after Curly Lambeau passed away. And they did that in 1965. And to this day, it's, it's still one of the older stadiums. Yes, but only the Cubs at Wrigley Field, which was built in 1916, well, it was played in, uh, in 1916, starting off by the Chicago Cubs and the Boston Red Sox, who started playing at Fenway Park in 1912, they've the only two teams in professional sports that have played at their home stadiums longer. Period. Point blank. City Stadium, or again, it's the home field for Green Bay East High School. Bellevue Park was demo, uh, was demolished in 1928, so neither Bellevue or Hagermeister Park <laughs> lasted very long. Now, the next team to join the the, uh, the band were the Portsmouth Spartans. They were established actually in 1928, and they joined the NFL in 1930. And from 1930 to 1933, they played their home games at what was then called Universal Stadium. And it was built actually that same year, as a matter of fact, that the uh, Packers were, I mean, the, the Packers, the Spartans were established in 1928. And uh, they, it was a capacity of 8,200. You had 8,200 people, people that could pack in there. And at one point, after they've played those couple of years, ownership and the city, they, they figured, look, they could not afford the team. They really couldn't. In 1934, they actually sold the team to George Richards. We've talked about that on the show in the past, but for $8,000 and Richards moved them to Detroit. And of course, we know them now as the Detroit Lions. 1934 to 1937, they played at the University of Detroit Stadium. George Richards was a key cog in why the Detroit Lions play on Thanksgiving, okay? Their first game at the University of Detroit Stadium was a Thanksgiving Day game, which turned out to be a 16 to 13 loss to the Chicago Bears. But it was a sold out game. It was sold out. In 1938, they would move to what was then called Briggs Stadium, later renamed Tiger Stadium. And they stayed there till what, 1961? The Lions uh, home for the next, for, for 35 years. All right, and then their last game, which is crazy enough, 
They love Thanksgiving around there, right? <laughs> Their last game was on Thanksgiving, November 28th. 1974 31-27 loss to the Denver Broncos 1975 they will move to the city of Pontiac into the Silverdome and that was actually the first stadium that used uh, for their roof that was made of fiberglass the first stadium that used air pressure technology and the Pontiac Silverdome uh, you, you have to well you know of course Detroit Lions fans know all about it but it actually hosted Super Bowl 16. It was their first and only Super Bowl. And if you go back to the day of that game, it was very cold. I think it was in the negatives and it was hard to get there that day. But uh, that's that's the site where the 49ers dynasty began when they won their first Super Bowl against the Bengals January of 1982. But of course in 2002, they were moving to Ford Field, which I did not know it being downtown. Ford Field is actually built 45 feet below that's part of this 45 feet below the ground so it wouldn't stick out you know in that in the downtown area i mean that's that's pretty neat i i, I like it did i say neat i did anyway universal stadium renamed spartan municipal stadium and uh in 1970 and in 2003 it was named a historical landmark and it is actually still used today to my knowledge, it's the home of the Notre Dame High School football team. That's where they play their home games. And also from where I read, they're actually looking to try to, I guess, get some funding in order to kind of restore it or whatnot. So they're working on that. Tiger Stadium slash Briggs Stadium was demolished in 2008. And the Pontiac Silverdome was imploded twice in 2017 because the first time it didn't work. They had to rewire it and do it again. It's pretty, pretty wild. Next up, the Washington Commanders in 1932. All right, two years later, um, well, of course, it was at the time they started off as the Boston Braves and eventually were called the Boston Redskins within a year. George Preston Marshall opted to have a franchise and he named his team the same name of the then baseball team, Boston Braves, and that was to attract some attention to his to his team. One day I'm gonna do a show on him. He was a, he was a showman guy. Um, Preston, uh, George Preston Marshall, uh, and his team, they also played at Braves Field. That was the first spot that they played at, which you know, is where the Braves baseball team played. It was built back in 1915, and they played there in 1932. In 33, they would actually move over to Fenway Park. Yes, the home of the Boston Red Sox. And uh, Fenway, they stayed there until 1936. Well, that year, he was a little perturbed at his fans. Uh, specifically <laughs> because of the last game that they played and their attendance apparently was, let's just say, waning a little bit. Um, 33, they, when they moved over there, I guess they thought it was going to be a lot better, right? Uh, and then, you know, the 36 championship game, they, they made it all the way there. But he moved the game. He had the first owner to move the game he had a home field advantage and he moved it to new york city they was going to play at the polo grounds instead now according to john eisenberg's book the league um george preston marshall when he did decide to have the uh the team he said you know he, he talked about how he knew the owner of the baseball's boston braves and he they arranged for a cheap lease deal for the team at braves field of course they only lasted a year and then they moved over to fenway park thinking things were going to be a little bit better. Well, by that last year, especially with them being a championship-level team, 
<laughs> this is the first and only time an owner moved his home field advantage. Why? Again, the attendance in Boston. And this is quoting Marshall. He said, quote, they don't deserve to see the championship game. They don't deserve the team either. We will never play another game in Boston. And his last home game of the season, there were only 4,813, excuse me, 4,813 fans that showed up at Fenway to watch the Redskins beat Pittsburgh. Remember, this is a historical show. Forgive me. Uh, but not only did he move the championship game, he would move them to Washington, D.C. Boston lost to Green Bay 21-6 in front of 29,545 fans. And then they would move to, in 1937, Griffith Stadium. That was their new home that was built back in 1911. And that's where Major League Baseball's Washington Senators, Senators uh, played their baseball. And also, the Georgetown Hoyas football team, which they don't have a football team anymore. That's where they played. And it was also the site of two uh, very interesting, well, really one really interesting uh, championship game in NFL history. Of course, the 1940 NFL championship game was the 73 to nothing beatdown of, of uh, Washington by the Chicago Bears. And of course, they got them back in 1942, beating the Bears and George Hallis 14 to nothing. 1961, though, they will go over to Memorial Stadium. That's the new stadium that was built for the great price of $24 million. So, you know, but the crazy part is, even with that, in order to play there, if you don't remember, George Preston Marshall was the last one to integrate his football team. Of course, there was the trade between uh, the Browns and Washington in order to acquire a couple of players, one of which was Hall of Famer halfback Bobby Mitchell. Well, you know, the Kennedy administration made sure that, uh, you know, that got done. And this was actually the first stadium that was built specifically, I can't talk today, specifically for baseball and football. And speaking of which, uh, that presidential candidate, Robert F. Kennedy, was shot fatally on June 5th, 1968, and was pronounced dead uh, on the 6th. And they renamed that stadium RFK Stadium in 1969. In 1997, they moved into Jack Kit Cook Stadium. He was the owner at the time, which now we know as FedEx Field. Presently, that's where the Washington Commanders do play. Of course, Braves Field, which is actually known as Nickerson Field, it, the remains of it, is, I don't think it's even used, uh, the remains of it are on the Boston University campus. Griffith Stadium was sold to Howard University, in which they demolished it in 1965 and is now Howard University Hospital. RFK, from what I read, I thought that it was already demolished. And I'm, I keep thinking I'm getting conflicting things, but when you go online, there's a demolition that is actually set to begin this year. So, you know, there's that. Now, the two Philadelphia teams came in at the same time. Let's go first with the Philadelphia Eagles. In 1933, they came in with their first owner, Burt Bell, and they would play their home games at the Baker Bowl. The stadium was also called and known as the Cigar Box or the Band Box. They played there for three years. Uh, and then for four years, starting in 1936, they moved over to Philadelphia Municipal Stadium. 
and that was renamed JFK Stadium in 1964. But the Eagles, as the narrator of NFL Throwback says, they were already long gone because by 1940, the Philadelphia Eagles were playing at Scheib Park, which was the first stadium that was built in Major League uh, for Major League team that was built of steel and concrete. And it opened way back in 1909 and was the home for the Philadelphia Athletics. And they played there, the Eagles did, until 1957. And the crazy part is, is that Shaw Park did not look, if you look at the pictures, it does not look like from the outside a stadium at all. If you get the aerial view, it's like, oh, there it is. But when you look down, uh, if you're looking from the street, it, it was a French Renaissance-themed building. It looks like it's almost like an office building or maybe a, a swanky apartment building from the outside. It doesn't look like a stadium is in there at all. It is pretty wild. Now, uh, and it was actually the site of the 1948 NFL title game, the first championship for the Eagles in their history. And that game, it was a really bad snowstorm. And it was a 7-0 win for Philadelphia against the Chicago Cardinals. But Hall of Fame running back, or fullback, Steve Van Buren scored that one lone touchdown. And I also read that he almost did not even make it to the game. His car got stuck in his driveway and he couldn't get it out. And so he took the bus, subway, train, and then he had to foot it to Shrive Park in order to get to that game, which is wild. Uh, 1953, Shrive Park was renamed Connie Mack Stadium. And uh, then eventually, the Eagles will end up at Franklin Field by 1958, and they stayed there until 1970. Franklin Field, interesting in itself, it is actually still standing to this day, and it is in use by Penn University. It's been around since 1895. It is the oldest stadium in use uh, in sports. It's, it's, it's crazy. Um, but it's also where a little situation well not a little situation at all uh it, it, you talk about historical things well let's go to a commissioner former commissioner burt bell pro football hall of famer burt bell was the first owner of the philadelphia eagles right and one time head coach of both the eagles and then went for one season in 1941 for the pittsburgh steelers and then by 1946 he became the commissioner of the nfl now on february 16th 1959 New York Giants owner Tim Mara suffered a heart attack, died at his, at his apartment on Park Avenue. Now, during his funeral, which was attended by uh, Burt Bell, he actually suffered a minor heart attack himself. His doctor told him, dude, you need to stop going to these NFL games. And Bell told the doctor, and I'm quoting him, I'd rather die watching football than in my bed with my boots off. Seven months later, yeah, he actually got his wish. October 12, 1959, at Franklin Field in Philadelphia. The two teams that he that he was a part of, the Eagles and the Steelers, they were playing. And the Eagles actually scored what was called an insurance tech touchdown with less than two minutes to play. And according to John Eisenberg's book, going back to it again, Philly wide receiver Tommy McDonald, he scored the touchdown and he noticed that one section wasn't celebrating because Bell had suffered a fatal heart attack. The crazy thing is, the Eagles actually had box seats for him, but he paid for his own ticket and sat with the fans. I'm sorry, but that's awesome. I, I hate that the man died and went out like that, but then too, he said he wanted to die 
uh, being a part of football, and that's exactly what he did. That's wild. Now, by 1971, probably one of the worst stadiums as far as that concrete on uh, with car- a little bit thin carpet on top of it was built. Veterans Stadium, of course, it was named for the veterans, um, war veterans, or the vet, and they played there uh, from 1971 going in deep into the 2000, well, early 2000s and 2003, of course, the uh, Philadelphia Eagles had moved into Lincoln Financial Field. Their last game for the Eagles at the vet was in 2002. Uh, And I thought it was pretty interesting. Didn't know that they at one point had a mouse problem, which they actually used cats to be the mousers. Uh, Then they actually had, what, Eagles Court, for unruly fans. I thought that was interesting too. Um, Connie Mack Stadium was demolished in 1976 and the vet bit the dust in 2002. Uh, and thank God for Lincoln Financial Field. Love that grass. And then my team, the Pittsburgh Steelers, established by Art Rooney July 8th, 1933. Uh, they started off, of course, as the Pittsburgh Pirates, the same name as baseball's Pirates. And I'm, I'm thinking that they did the exact same thing our Rooney did to attract attention to their football team. They're trying to gain some ground for pro baseball. Is on everybody's mind is the number one sport uh, throughout the country, and college football is up there as well. But of course, they changed their name to the Steelers in 1940 to separate themselves. Um, not a lot of good memories prior to 1969. It was 40 years of losing, and like all other teams. They shared a stadium with Major League Baseball with the Pirates. Now, built in 1909, they are playing their home games from the start in 1933 at Forbes Field, which was actually named uh, after the street that it sat on, which was Forbes Avenue, which that street was named after a British general, John Forbes. French, uh, was it the French and um, the French War that was going on? Forgive me, I do not remember totally. I probably shouldn't even mention it. But he was a key cog in that war. That's why the street was named after John Forbes. Anyway, it was home for the Pittsburgh Steelers from 1933 to 1963. And it is to be noted that they did bounce around a little bit. And due to World War II, Shrive Park is another spot that they played because they had to join forces with the uh, Philadelphia Eagles. And then Kaminsky, uh, Kaminsky Park, they played alongside the Chicago Cardinals. Of course, you had a lot of boys that was going off to war. And so teams, some of them had to kind of uh, put two teams together. They didn't have enough players, right? 1958, they were playing at the University of Pittsburgh Stadium, Pitt Stadium, uh, which became their permanent home uh, from 64 to 70, uh, excuse me, 64 to 69. And of course, Hall of Famer or Hall of Famers, in 1969 came along coach chuck Knoll, uh for uh their first pick in the draft that year mean joe green 1970 you brought in some more hall of famers terry bradshaw mel blount and then three rivers stadium and for the next 30 years that's where the steelers dynasty was born you had the immaculate reception that have to happen there in 1972 the terrible towel was introduced there in 1975 seven AFC championship games. They also had movable seats because they were still sharing a stadium with the Pittsburgh Pirates. It was pretty cool in the 70s because not only were the Steelers winning championships, the Pirates were as well. Um, And then uh, they both would actually eventually get their own stadiums, which we know now uh, the Pitt Panthers 
still stuck with the football side of things in 2001 alongside the Pittsburgh pay up the Pittsburgh Steelers 2001 Heinz Field football only stadium all right you know it now as of 2022 as Acrisure Stadium but I kind of uh, missed the big ketchup bottle I, I like that the Pirates they got PNC, PNC Park which was next door now as far as the former stadiums that the Steelers played in they all have bit the dust Forbes Field 1971 demoed Pitt Stadium 1999 demoed and in 19 seconds they demolished Three Rivers in 2001 and so with that being said that's it <laughs> that is it so I can't wait for part three because uh, you know, we've wrapped this thing up with a couple other stadiums that I thought were really really interesting especially in playing parts or some parts in championship games going forward that's it references thanks to ESPN.com ProFootballReference.com StadiumsOfProFootball.com also NFL.com this was titled NFL Championship the Philly Blizzard also the historical marker database this one on Bellevue Park and also a couple of books the Sporting News Complete Super Bowl Book 1993 edition editors Tom Diner Joe Hopple and Dave Sloan America's Game, the NFL at 100, co-written by Jerry Rice and Randy O. Williams. The League, how five rivals created the NFL and launched a sports empire by John Eisenberg. And also a couple of videos, 75 seasons, the story of the NFL. And also this was the biggest one, NFL throwback. The NFL explained the history of every NFL stadium. And finally, my eyes, ears, and brain. This has been the Behind the Mic Podcast presented by Belly Up Sports, Belly Up Media, Belly Up Sports Podcast Network. Check us out on bellyupsports.com and our home base of Megaphone. Also the favorites, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and YouTube. Tell all your friends and family about this show or I will find your house. I'm out. I'm out.